everyone. Welcome and thank you for joining us. I know that you have extremely busy travel schedules at the moment, so we really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Um, we're here today to discuss some updates to how uh, insurers are handling pandemic-related claims and recommendations about um, how your clients should be handling them. Um, we should pre um, add the standard qualifier that there is almost no case law thus far and uh, very few claims have actually been submitted. And so everything remains up in the air um, about all of these uh, particular types of policies that we're gonna talk about. Um, and we will be available for questions. The question and answer box is open. If you find something unclear or have a follow-up question during the presentation or afterward, we'll be available for questions. Um, so we're going to start off with the, the sort of the core uh, question that people are asking at the moment most often is about property coverage and business interruption within property policies. We're going to talk about a couple of specialty type policies that are more likely to provide coverage if your clients did purchase them. We're going to talk about commercial general liability coverage and third party claims, um, how to preserve claims um, and submit them at this time, and then some legislative proposals that may improve uh, the chances of getting insurance coverage for COVID related claims in the future. Um, and so I'm going to pass it off to Nate. Thanks, Sarah. Hi, everyone. I'm Nate Cole. I'm a partner with Kenny and Sam's. Um, and we've been fielding a lot of questions about uh, business interruption coverage and whether there's any insurance that's going to uh, provide some help for businesses that have been hit pretty hard with this, whether they've shut down uh, via the, the order as uh, essential or non-essential businesses, or whether they've uh, followed the, the governor's orders and recommendations to voluntarily shut down and have people work remotely. And, and those things are going to play into the ultimate outcome here. Uh, as Sarah alluded to, there's not a lot of litigation yet in Massachusetts uh, for us to, to go by, but we expect that that'll take place over the next few months. We don't have a ton of case law, but we've been able to look at cases throughout the United States and some in Massachusetts to get some context to how courts are likely to interpret uh, some of these provisions, the key provisions and the policies. So we wanted to start initially with an overview of business interruption coverage uh, in a few of the different policies that we'll look at today. It's important to just have some context for what business interruption coverage would typically cover so that you can then analyze these policies and advise policyholders, uh, your clients, about the likelihood of, of coverage. I can tell you that initially my um, diving into these policies for a number of reasons, I'm not seeing great arguments for insureds to be able to make claims, but there's gonna be some real creative lawyering over the next few weeks and months. And so uh, once we start to see decisions come down and outcomes that show how Massachusetts judges are going to be interpreting these clauses, that may, that may change. And so we'll talk a little bit about the specific provisions of the policies, some key exclusions in the policies that you wanna be mindful of, and then uh, the, the notification and claims handling uh, how insureds and their agents should go forward with putting carriers on notice of these claims to, to preserve and protect their rights. Um, some key parts here I'll talk about in a moment with the, with the business interruption. It's in the context of property policies. So Sarah's gonna look at some of the other um, policies where you'll see business interruption coverage, but let's start with, with a policy, pol uh, a, a property policy. Um, 
where you'll, you'll see the business interruption coverage in those policies, you want to focus on that language and look exactly what it says about the requirements uh, to trigger that type of coverage. You'll also be hearing a lot about uh, the civil authority coverage and whether uh, the fact that the government has put out certain orders, whether that's a basis for coverage within these policies. And then we'll look at the, the virus bacteria exclusion that a number of policies have in them. And that's, that's a, a pretty important exclusion today. Um, yeah, let me try and jump ahead. Um, started with the, the basics of business interruption. So in a traditional all risk type of policy, um, you're, you're looking initially at whether there was a physical loss or damage uh, to the property, to the premises itself. So that's it, it, what you're going to look for initially is whether there is some sort of physical loss. When, when you look at business interruption coverage, a typical example would be sprinklers going off uh, and resulting in property damage to the office, to the rugs, to the computers. When you have that sort of clear property damage in place and you've got business interruption coverage, it's evident that there's physical damage to the premises. So you're not going to have a huge hurdle there. Uh, another big part that you want to be looking for, however, and it's, it's a conjunctive, there's three factors that these policies require in the business interruption coverage typically, is whether there's physical loss and then whether that physical loss results in a period of uh, business shut, shutting down, whether it's partial, whether it's total, but some period of time where the business can't fully operate. That period of time is a period of restoration that the policy also will define. So there may be limitations within the policy that you want to be looking at in terms of the length of time that you'd have for that particular coverage to kick in and be in effect. When you've got the direct physical loss or property damage at the premises, coupled with a causal connection that requires the business to shut down or be suspended in some way. Uh, and that then results in a causal connection with, the, with business income loss, um, with you know, an increased cost, with a loss of revenue, whether you have to relocate or whether you're slowing down. When you have those three factors, that's typically when you'd argue and be able to obtain business interruption coverage as an insured. What we're gonna look at here though is which of those three elements presents a real uh, problem for making a claim pursuant to a, a loss uh, with COVID or coronavirus, because uh, you're gonna have to still hit all three elements and there are arguments that we're already seeing, pretty strong arguments as to why the coronavirus and claims made pursuant to coronavirus don't necessarily trigger those uh, three factors. So we'll look initially at, at the physical loss component, right? Um, obviously, when you're looking at the policy, you wanna see uh, whether there's a definition or how specific it describes as physical damage or loss. You also wanna look at the language of whether it specifically says damage or loss, because as I'll talk about in a minute, there is a distinction between the two, but you wanna look to see whether there's been any sort of physical uh, structural change to the premises or to a part of the premises. Uh, if so, then you're going to be able to make a claim for um, the business interruption with regard to that, that prong of the three-part test. The issue with coronavirus, of course, is that a lot of businesses are shutting down or have been shut down, not because of the coronavirus actually causing damage to the premises or any part of it. 
but rather because of government orders or because of complying or just because of trying to, to flatten the curve. Um, courts throughout the, the country, however, have interpreted somewhat similar instances, whether it's bacteria or other uh, contaminants, in ways that may be applicable to how we expect folks to argue for coverage in Massachusetts in the coming months and years. And so as you dive into this, uh, you want to be looking nationally at some cases that have looked at comparable issues involving contamination. Some courts have looked at physical loss or, or destruction of property, uh, not so much in the context of, of things actually breaking uh, per se, but in the context of whether contamination actually rendered the property unusable or uninhabitable for some amount of time, right? So uh, when, you, when you make an argument that although the coronavirus hasn't in fact altered any property in the sort of literal sense of physical damage, some courts have interpreted a contamination of property to amount to physical loss of use of the property essentially. That may be an, uh, an area where we see these arguments headed uh, in, in the coming months. Um, how long was the property uninhabitable or unusable? And was that length of time tied to the amount of time it took to clean up the, the virus? Or was it tied to an ongoing extended shelter in place order uh, or an order for what constitutes essential services? That distinction is going to be critical. Even if you can make an argument that there is a physical loss in the sense that the property is uninhabitable. You're still going to have to tie that and causally connect it to the period of time that the property is not in use or is limited in, in use. So if the property can be cleaned up and decontaminated by an exposure to COVID-19 within a matter of days, the issue is going to be how long can you extend that argument that there was in fact a physical loss when the property can be cleaned up relatively quickly or as we're seeing, the, the coronavirus itself may simply self-destruct. And so if after a period of time, it just goes away, uh, that's gonna be a tougher argument to make that there is this sustained period of physical damage or loss such that you'd be able to collect within the, the terms of the policy. Uh, there are cases that talk about whether it's exposure to, um, to bacteria or, or contaminants at the microscopic level, that if something causes property damage at the microscopic level, that's still property damage. The issue with coronavirus is, although it, it may be taking place uh, and attaching to parts of the premises or parts of the property, a countertop or the walls or the buttons on the elevator, um, it happens at a microscopic level, but you still have to clear the threshold of whether there's been direct physical property damage or loss. And so while courts, and you'll find decisions that interpret that microscopic loss or damage to be sufficient, we're still going to have to get over that, that hurdle here in Massachusetts for establishing that, in fact, coronavirus attaching to a piece of metal constitutes uh, the physical damage that it's looking for. I think what we'll also see going forward is that the level of uh, contamination, that is, the number of, of folks that, that are found to be infected uh, at a particular location or property, um, and in fact, whether we're able to determine that there is COVID-19 on the surface of a, of a particular premises, that is going to be relevant. You're going to want to be looking to see whether the business is shut down because it's specifically ordered to following an outbreak as opposed to a business closure uh, through a more generic uh, general order by, by the government. So those factors are going to matter. I think it'll come down to whether there's one person or 50 people. 
you're gonna have a better argument uh, for physical contamination, loss of use or damage of the property when you have more people at a specific location that have in fact been infected. Now, caveat, all of these are going to be uh, creative, nuanced arguments that are, that are a bit of a long shot, but we're looking at sort of where we expect there could be arguments for coverage. I, I don't think any of these are going to be particularly strong, successful arguments, but it's where we're gonna see the arguments made and it's where we're gonna see carriers and council pushing back on such claims. Um, in addition to the physical loss of the, the property uh, and whether you've satisfied that prong, um, we're gonna be looking at exactly uh, what it took to clean up the property uh, and that period of restoration um, but what constitutes within the orders from the government uh, property damage? And by that, I mean, if you're looking at an order that simply says in order to flatten the curve, we need to shelter in place and stay at home. That's not the same thing as an order that we could imagine, uh, which says that these buildings in this area of a city in Massachusetts have to shut down because there's been widespread exposure and infection of, of, of coronavirus at these specific locations. I think that sort of distinction is important. Um, and as we look to the order itself of what's generating the shutdown and whether the order gives us any cause or argument to show that there's property damage, you wanna look and see exactly what Governor Baker or respective mayors in, in various towns are saying. What I'm seeing so far is not that these buildings are contaminated and that's why Baker has issued orders but rather he's deemed certain uh, industries to be essential and non-essential. Um, Walsh has come in and, and Mayor Walsh has shut down construction in, uh, in the city of Boston. We're seeing that in Somerville and in Cambridge, but those things are not driven uh, and the orders don't have language that specifies that there's property damage. That's important because once you, if you start to see language from governmental orders that reference some sort of exposure or contamination at a property, you're gonna to wanna to use that language as part of an argument that there is in fact uh, property damage. Uh, another area where we will see arguments for coverage is in business interruption section dealing with civil authority. This type of coverage, and you can see up on the PowerPoint now, um, business interruption loss that's caused by a civil authority that prohibits access to specific areas of the city, of blocks, of buildings. That's when you would typically see the civil authority coverage trigger. Nevertheless, it's important that, again, in these orders that are shutting down cities entirely um, or, or are limiting certain businesses, uh, that's, going, that, that's different. That's not the same thing as saying that certain buildings are shut down because of physical loss uh, or damage. And as you'll see in the language here, most of the provisions for civil authority coverage in property policies also tie that, that coverage, the civil authority language, to actual physical loss or property damage, right? So again, we're gonna go back to looking at whether in fact these orders that shut down that cause loss or buildings that shut down are derived from um, this threshold question of physical loss or, or damage to the property. Um, you wanna to look to see whether um, the, the language of the policy references damage or loss, that's important, whether it's defined more fully um, but as a general matter, be looking at the specific orders from the government to see if there's any language in there that would help trigger or make an argument for physical damage and a shutdown as a result of it. Um, 
take a look at some of the exclusions that are, are critical. So while we initially look to see in a policy whether there's physical loss or damage that has caused this period of restoration or shutdown followed by the period of restoration and then a direct causal connection to, uh, to, to business losses, you also of course wanna look at a policy to see if there's any exclusions that apply. And in a number of the property policies that I've seen, you'll see a Massachusetts virus and bacteria exclusion. It's got very strong language in it that I think carriers are gonna hang their hat on uh, to push back, even if you can make the argument that there is uh, property damage or that there is a successful argument for loss of use in the context of contamination. If there's a virus exclusion that's in the policy, it's gonna make it that much harder. So the first thing you wanna do when you get one of these policies is of course, to look for that, that specific exclusion, the virus exclusion. You can see the language here, it's, it's very specific. And in fact, many of them reference viruses. Um, that's not a coincidence. We started to see more of the virus exclusion in the mid 2006, 2007 range following SARS. So the ISO uh, in, in carriers were focused on including a provision that specifically excluded coverage for viruses. It, it seems not surprisingly that the insurance industry was one of the few industries that was ready for this pandemic. And these the policies that include these exclusions uh, make it that much harder to be able to make an argument for coverage. Um, one of the things that's interesting though, in, in an argument that you'll see come up, sorry to jump ahead to your, your Sarah, but um, the fact that there is an exclusion for virus uh, that's out there and that some carriers are using and some aren't, you're gonna start to see lawyers uh, make the argument that it's there for a reason. That is, carriers are concerned that they needed this exclusion uh, to push back on the idea that a virus would cause physical damage or physical loss. So the argument where you don't see that exclusion will go along the lines of this, that the industry had this exclusion and they had it for a reason. The lack of an exclusion in a the policy, therefore, uh, may be a, a useful tool that you can make the argument that where it doesn't, it, it, the exclusion doesn't exist, uh, there is in fact uh, property damage. If they wanted there to, uh, to be an exclusion for a virus, they would include it, the industry has it. So where you have a policy that doesn't have the exclusion, I think it's useful not only in that you don't have to deal with that exclusionary language, but I think the, the reasonable inference that you can draw is that it's out there and it's out there for a reason. And you wanna be making that argument to the extent you're arguing for coverage that an insured a policyholder bought a policy that didn't have that exclusion. Uh, and that, that's an ambiguity. And as you know, an ambiguity within the policy, whether it's in how the physical loss or damage is defined, whether it's in the fact that there's not this exclusion, we use the, the ambiguity argument to uh, work in favor of the policyholder. Conversely, if there's not an exclusion, I don't think that means carriers are just gonna throw their hands up and start cutting checks. I think they're still gonna push back and be able to make the arguments with regard to the lack of, uh, of proof of physical damage, uh, and stop right there, but they have strong arguments. Um, now, Sarah's gonna jump in to look at some of the other specialty policies and look uh, at how business interruption and some other issues with coronavirus exist in those policies. All right, thanks, Nate. I actually uh, wanna just mention in terms of the virus exclusion that there are some policies that while they don't include the specific, you know, control F virus, which is the first thing I do when I'm looking at policies for coverage here, 
um, but they may exclude damage resulting from contamination. Um, you might want to look at mold and bacteria exclusions and just see whether the language is going to be broad enough that your insurer is going to push back. Um, the most successful claims that uh, the insurance practice at Anderson Krieger has seen so far and uh, the most, the ones that have been getting the most coverage in both popular media and in um, insurance publications is event cancellation coverage and other specialty policies that apply specifically to pandemics or other mass, uh, not mass casualty incidents, but uh, large global problems. Um, so many of you may have heard that Wimbledon um, is set to receive a fairly significant payout on its insurance claim. Um, they have cut, carried some rider or special coverage for pandemics that they paid $2 million a year for since 2006, since the SARS outbreak. And they foresaw that they may lose, I think they make more than half a million, more than $500 million on this tournament. And so when they had to cancel it, um, they are likely to get at least $141 million payout on that insurance policy. So these uh, po specialty policies can be very, very expensive to procure. Um, there are a couple of insurers who have gone very strongly in the last couple of years into providing event cancellation and sort of very specific specialty policies for these things. Um, and those insurers are likely to be having a very bad month. Um, so event cancellation policies are policies that are purchased for a specific event. Um, and that will uh, indemnify you for loss resulting from cancellation, abandonment, curtailment, postponement, relocation, um, or where there might maybe enforced reduced attendance. Um, these are manuscript policies, so the language will vary very widely. They're not as standardized as property policies or as uh, general liability policies. Um, and originally they were written for more localized problems. Rather than a global pandemic, underwriters were looking for hurricanes that might stop the Super Bowl, for example. Um, and so I think they are realizing that they're, they may have been undercharging for this coverage. Um, some of those policies also include communicable disease exclusions, um, but one that we have seen um, had an exception within that exclusion for government-mandated shutdowns. And so uh, we've been working on, as Nate said, looking at the text of the order that applied to that particular event to see if we can argue that it was in fact a shutdown. Um, there are other ones that will not, do not explicitly cover postponement. Um, and so, um, and that will look very specifically at why an event was canceled and when. Um, so that kind of timing issue becomes very important as events are canceled throughout the summer um, if your client was lucky enough to have purchased this insurance. Um, another policy area that we're seeing um, actually have better potential for coverage um, for COVID-related claims are specialty environmental policies. Um, I have put in some screenshots of one policy that I particularly like and I'm feeling fairly hopeful about coverage under. Um, although, as we'll discuss, there are still significant uh, causation issues to discuss about how much of their business interruption coverage will be, will be uh, included here. 
Um, so this pollution, this pollution policy defines pollution condition to include contaminant, which I think is likely to, uh, courts are likely to find that that will include viruses, um, but it also includes infectious or pathological waste, which I think shows an, an intent to cover viral contamination. Um, so that's, that's the first area that it's important to look at. Um, and then looking at the loss definition, this one is particularly good. It covers business interruption loss, which can be partial or complete suspension of operations directly attributable to a pollution condition. Um, so this doesn't require a civil authority shutdown necessarily. It can be that the suspension of operations um, was due to con viral contamination. Um, it likely will require that there was contamination on the site, um, which gives rise to our uh, potential causation issues. Uh, how much of the fact that there was virus on some metal surface or some cardboard surface uh, really caused the business losses that we have been seeing um, in shutdown businesses where really it's the, it's the stay at home order that has been causing the lack of, in, of revenue. Um, but there are some helpful, um, other helpful terms in this policy that you would want to look out for, including that um, it would reimburse you for lost business income, which could include rental income from tenants. Um, you're seeing a lot of tenants deciding not to pay rent for the month of April and May um, and uh, continue operating in payroll expenses. So I did want to put in one note about workers' compensation because while, um, you know, this is not a policy that we work with particularly, um, they are, there are some arguments going on about whether um, coronavirus infection in employees is going to be covered by workers' compensation or whether it may be the basis of a third party uh, liability claim or an employment liability claim in the future. Um, the workers' compensation system in Massachusetts will cover um, personal injury um, that includes infectious or contagious diseases that are inherent in the employment, uh, in the, inherent in the nature of their employment. So um, other states have used words like ordinary diseases of life. Um, we think that this is likely to mean that the state could decide that um, it will not, that workers' compensation insurance will not cover injuries for um, retail store workers um, or folks who are, uh, who may have a dif difficulty proving that they are contracting COVID-19 as a result of their working as opposed to the fact that there is a global pandemic. Um, healthcare workers and EMTs are likely to see a better shot at this. Um, because it really is inherent in their employment that they are being exposed to this virus. And that's a, a risk inherent in their employment. Um, if the workers' compensation uh, system, uh, insurance system does not apply, then that opens up the possibility of a third party claim, liability claim against an employer. Um, and for that, I'm going to turn it back to Nate. Thanks, Sarah. So we've talked about um, some of these policies and, and now looking at a CGL policy, a commercial general liability policy, uh, dovetailing a little bit with Sarah's discussion on workers' comp policies. 
These policies would provide coverage for bodily injury claims or property damage claims by third parties. And what we may start to see now are these claims coming in from um, various lawyers representing plaintiffs that are either injured, whether it's on a job site or whether it's going to uh, a movie theater or a restaurant or a cruise who are alleging that as a result of negligent behavior on the part of that particular insured that the plaintiff was, was injured in contracting the coronavirus. Uh, Sarah alluded to uh, with the workers' comp policy that there's gonna be some causation issues that you wouldn't typically see in workers' comp in that most comp claims are relatively straightforward. Someone gets hurt on the job and, and you see it and you can, you can tell. Uh, there is a fight over that, of course, in some claims, but there's gonna be a much bigger fight when we're talking about exposure to COVID. With the CGL policy, we're similarly gonna see some, some arguments over causation and how folks are able to establish that they contracted uh, coronavirus, COVID, via the work site or via a cruise uh, or wherever they're alleging they got it from. We're gonna have that pretty big causal hurdle. That could change as the science improves and as people are able to identify exactly how they got it, when they got it. Uh, but for the time being, I'd say that the, the causation defense is gonna be a big one and tough to overcome for folks. But um, where you, you'll see it, and I think you need to be aware of the, uh, the potential for claims if you're representing, whether it's contractors, and I represent a lot of construction companies, um, or whether it's other property owners, uh, is initially whether there was a, a, a breach of a duty, right? And so we're looking at whether a company was negligent, whether it failed to um, do what was reasonable in a situation in terms of providing protective equipment, uh, if you're a general contractor or subcontractor and you have this non-delegable responsibility for at least liability for job site safety, it's no different to provide personal protective equipment for, uh, for contractors and employees that are working on site than I would submit it would be for fall protection. And so even when you're advising companies that it is appropriate for them to continue to work because they're within the enumerated essential services, uh, list that Governor Baker had promulgated, it still is contingent on the ability to uh, conform with the, uh, the guidelines for safety on job sites. And so when I'm advising someone about whether they can continue to work, I do initially look at whether their work is listed as an essential service, but then also say, if you can't do it safely, then you're not gonna be able to comply. Uh, and it's not just whether you can continue to work, it's also then the potential for exposure for liability or failure to, uh, to procure safety equipment, um, make sure that you're following the guidelines with, with regard to having temperatures taken and all of the things that are required right now for uh, construction companies and other businesses that are continuing to work. So I think where you could see some arguments uh, is a failure to provide protective equipment, a failure to close the company um, quickly enough to the extent that there were companies that even after there were warnings from the government that were putting folks on notice of the dangers of contracting COVID to the extent that they continued to stay open, that's arguably going to be a breach and negligence. Um, whether they're able to tie it all the way and causally connect it to the injury is another question. Um, and, and whether they fail to put in reasonable uh, procedures to slow down the spread of the virus. Those are areas where you're gonna see litigation. Um, I think another big issue to consider, however, is that CGL coverage is providing coverage for an occurrence, which is defined in the policy as an accident. So are 
people going to be able to make a, a claim it, when a claim is made rather against a policyholder, whether that policyholder is going to potentially have its claim uh, for defense and indemnification to a CGL carrier denied could come down to the question of whether that particular policyholder uh, was able to reasonably foresee this type of exposure. That is, if it was foreseeable and they nevertheless continued their operations or continued to fail to provide the, the requisite safety equipment, there's an argument to be made that somebody, a third party who contracts COVID, it was not the result of an occurrence or an accident. Uh, but rather something that was foreseeable and that they went forward almost uh, to a level of intentionality. So that's something to consider as you're looking at the potential CGL claims that are going to be coming in. Um, we also wanted to talk about how you go forward with these claims, even though, as you've seen from our presentation thus far, there, there is a big uphold, uphill battle to be able to successfully pursue claims for business interruption coverage, uh, given the lack of direct uh, physical property damage or loss of use and some of the other exclusions that we've talked about. But the question comes up is should folks still go forward with the claim? Uh, as you probably know, your, your clients, these insurers, are always mindful of inadvertently increasing their loss run by making um, claims that are baseless or that have no shot of ultimately uh, prevailing. I think in this situation, though, because of a number of unknown factors, you still want to advise them to go forward with putting carriers on notice of a claim. They've got likely a contractual obligation to do that, and you want to be very mindful of the tight turnaround period for putting uh, carriers on notice, depending on, of course, whether it's claims made or claims reported. But looking at the policy itself, you want to see whether the policy has, as it likely does, a contractual limitations period that would shorten the time period in which you have to uh, bring suit. And so you may have a policy that says, You've got two years to go ahead and, and file suit or you waive a claim that you might be able to make under that policy, even though you may still have periods of, of a year or more under common law statutes of limitations. So it's important that if someone comes to you and inquires about whether they should be making a claim, that I think you first start with identifying these issues that we've talked about, that they've got a big problem with establishing uh, physical damage to the property, that there could be an exclusion for a virus that would be in play. Um, that you're going to be fighting against carriers that are going to fight very hard to make sure that these claims are not successful just because of the windfall that would take place um, for policyholders throughout the country if, in fact, some of these dominoes start to fall and carriers have to pay. Uh, but you nevertheless want to advise them to put the carrier on notice. You want to do that in conjunction with an insurance agent or broker, whoever they're using. Uh, and you want to follow the language in the policy to see who is obligated to provide notice. It likely is the, the policyholder. Although these policyholders may have relationships with their agents, which the agents sometimes put carriers on notice of claims and sometimes they don't, I think you want to make sure that it's, it's very clear whose responsibility it is and whether it's your client or whether it's your client's agent or a combination of both, that they're going forward as required by the policy of putting uh, the appropriate people on notice as required within, within the policy itself. Um, you also want to think about the evidentiary considerations. So let's assume that for reasons we are not sure of right now, that there ultimately starts to be cases in which there's coverage that's found. Right now, as things are coming in, you want to be building the evidence that may be necessary as these claims go forward. Uh, depending on, on the nature of the claim, it might be you're tracking down suppliers, you're tracking down business partners, you're tracking down customers. But what you're definitely doing is building 
the requisite documents and the witnesses who are going to be used, just like any other case where you would be trying to establish these particular losses to the extent that ultimately coverage uh, is available. Uh, so I would approach it like you're approaching any other pre-litigation case when you're putting in a claim that you're preserving it properly. You may want to think about the, um, the, the damages calculations and whether you need an expert. That's a big ask for many clients right now of jumping in and, and paying for an expert. And so it's not something that I'm doing now, but I'm thinking about as uh, folks are, are pulling together documents, whether the types of claims that I'm going to be making on behalf of, of a client, whether it's a straightforward claim of, of loss of income or something that's more uh, attenuated and, and going to require an expert, I want to at least identify for the client that here's what it's going to look like if we go forward, that somewhere down the road, we may need these documents, we may need to coordinate with your accountant, we may need to bring in an expert. Um, so putting together the, the supporting documents and thinking of it from the perspective of how this case would play out if you had to go forward uh, with a demand letter that's going to require more than just simply putting a carrier on notice, right? So you want to start to build the case for your respective clients and have them save their documents, memorialize the losses that they are going to make. You wanna tailor it directly to the policy language so you're making sure that you are providing documents that support the particular claim. And you wanna think about, based on the policy language, how you want to frame that claim. If you have a, a, an angle because of ambiguity in the language to frame a claim as a, a, a loss of use due to contamination, then you're gonna to wanna to build the case that way and you're gonna to wanna to present the information to a carrier that's consistent with that theory of the case. That would differ if there's no property damage and you don't think you've been shut down because of contamination uh, that's been found at the property. You're gonna to wanna to style it, of course, consistent with what the language and the policy says, but think about those strategic considerations for how you're drafting uh, notice and demand letters to your respective clients' carriers. Nate, if I could jump in here for a second, I think um, it's important to also bear in mind whether you are working under a policy that's a claims made policy versus an occurrence policy. Um, for example, I didn't talk about directors and officers insurance, um, but that is a, usually a claims made form um, and businesses that might be facing third party liability um, for failing to shut down earlier, failing to take significant precautions um, will likely face directors and officers claims. Um, and if you uh, are likely to want coverage under the current policy, you should be putting those insurers on notice of a potential claim um, and any other claims made uh, policies on notice of a potential claim. Those are a lot less detailed at the moment. Um, you really just need to provide them with a laundry list of potential claims coming out of um, various areas. Um, but, and we are happy to, you know, help with uh, determining how you should be, what details you need to be adding. But keep in mind, if you are working, if you have a claims made policy that you will need to be putting them on notice before the expiration of that policy. Yeah, that's a great point. I think that's right, depending again on the language of the policy. Uh, similarly, if you have clients that are in the process of renewing and putting together applications, there's going to be language that you have to be mindful of that may inquire as to whether there's potential claims. And so you want to make sure that you're not inadvertently, or clients not inadvertently misrepresenting in the course of an application for coverage. Uh, if you're having discussions with clients about these potential claims, it makes sense to ask for a copy of those policies and look at what's required with regard to notice. And if you have folks that are in the process of starting to think about 
uh, renewing an application or a new policy, you want to also look at that application and see what is required in terms of disclosing known claims and potential claims. That's a, that's a great point, Sarah. Um, jump ahead to the next slide. I've got a bit of a delay here. Okay. Um, so if the claim is denied, um, I think we've made the point that it makes sense to put folks on notice. What you should expect is you're going to get a denial. So you want to be mindful again of, of you know, is it, is it a flat out denial or is it some sort of a caveat with a reservation of rights? And that's important because under mass law at a minimum, if there's a reservation of rights, there might be some angle and you want to look at exactly where the carrier is couching uh, its position. Reservation of rights gives uh, your client the ability to retain private counsel as opposed to um, panel counsel to the extent that we're talking about a third party claim with some sort of a, um, a reservation of rights under mass, it's, it's ironclad. But if you uh, put in a claim, if, if the carrier then turns around and uh, denies or denies with a reservation, um, with a reservation of rights, then you're gonna be able to demand that your client uh, keep you on board or some other attorney of its choosing as opposed to uh, the carrier assigning panel counsel. So with regards to CGL claims in particular, you wanna be mindful of that. Uh, and that's true for, for any claims of the CGL policy. Uh, if in fact though, that you've got this sort of hybrid approach or response from the carrier, it's not a straight up denial, and there's language about proof of loss, uh, that dovetails with what I was saying earlier in terms of the evidentiary preparation. But you wanna look and, and advise clients that if they get one of these forms, it's critical that you're involved, that the agent is involved, that the client is involved, and that you're building this case, uh, whether it's through the proof of loss as required by the policy, or whether it's with an eye toward an ultimate uh, declaratory judgment action or other litigation in which you have to have this prepared. But don't let the denial end there. You still wanna weigh in, analyze it, and take a closer look at what the next steps are, because how you handle the denial or reservation of rights is equally important to your, to your clients. And yeah, and thinking about the time limits that may be in the policy, uh, if an outright denial forces you to move a little bit more quickly. In this case, especially with the em emerging uh, with larger businesses filing cases to try to clarify the law and various of these issues, it, there may be a lot of benefit to having more time to allow the law to progress and create new precedents that we can use. Um, so, you know, a reservation of rights may be a very um, good news for some of these claims. So you have a little bit more time to work with it. Should we move on to legislation? Legislation? I think so, unless there are any questions on these. Okay, I'm not seeing any come up yet. Just a reminder to everybody that there's a question and answer box. Uh, so if you have a question during the presentation, please feel free to drop it in, we can see it. Um, so the last section that we want to talk about a little bit is um, legislative proposals. Um, I felt that cheesy clip art was necessary. Um, this being a PowerPoint presentation, I think it's required by law. Um, but so there is some talk at the federal level about creating a um, pandemic risk insurance program that would be a federally funded business interruption coverage essentially for pandemics similar to the terrorism uh, insurance program. Um, it would basically be using insurers to um, administer a federally funded program. Uh, that has not moved very far, um, but we'll keep an eye on it. 
However, there are bills that are moving faster at the state level, including here in Massachusetts. Um, so states are considering legislation in various formats that would require business interruption coverage to respond to COVID-19 losses. Um, they are specifically, if you look at the Massachusetts language I've put here, they're specifically uh, asking or demanding that insurers disregard the uh, existence of a viral exclusion and that they disregard the requirement of physical damage or loss to your uh, property. Um, so they're essentially rewriting large portions of these insurance contracts. However, most of these would create a state fund to reimburse insurers for the extra coverage. So it is essentially um, a state funded insurance program that is utilizing existing insurance coverage in order to distribute money. Um, there's obviously some very serious constitutional uh, objections to these bills. Um, they're also in New Jersey, Ohio, New York, and Louisiana. Um, so we'll see how, uh, I think that this one in Massachusetts was particularly being pushed by the restaurant industry. Um, we will see how they play out. Uh, currently the Massachusetts bill has been referred to committee um, and keep everyone updated on how those are moving. All right, so now we come to our question and answer uh, portion. Um, I hope that people have some questions since we have a fair amount of time. Um, and this is really an opportunity to try to clarify issues that are coming up in a very fast developing situation. So. If we don't have any questions, however, um, please feel free to reach out to either of us, um, you know, uh, to, with additional questions, or if you feel like a client needs more insurance specific counseling, um, that is what uh, we do. So um, in addition, if you have a specific issue that you want us to cover in a future panel, um, then we are both on the steering committee for the torts and insurance uh, group and we are very interested in adding more panels that would be of interest so um, if you have an additional issue please feel free to email us all right oh, I, I do see a question wait uh, alan lipkin can you explain the risk of the loss run if you make a claim given the low likelihood of success? Sure. You know, there's always sort of a concern um, that any claim made is going to increase premium and be used against policyholders. I'm never sure exactly how that plays out and what the, the formula is that's being used by underwriters. Um, I think that that's a consideration. I think it's something that you should discuss with a client's agent and they can reach out to an underwriter directly and maybe get a better understanding of how this is going to play out. I, I think that in all likelihood, this is more about saving your, your spot in line. It's about making sure that you're checking the boxes. Um, to the extent that the legislative process results in some sort of a fund, it could be on a first come, first serve basis. So I think that it's still prudent, even though there's a potential uh, for this to impact uh, premium. I, I, that's usually generated by the amount of work that's done and the amount of money that's paid out. If this results in something where there's money being paid out to insure to your client, I think it's gonna be well worth any impact um, on, on the, the premium in the, in the form of a loss run. So I think that that's always something that I get asked about. 
generally speaking, I just say, I think it's the prudent approach to nevertheless uh, put somebody on notice. But if you have a client that's concerned, I think the, the appropriate answer is to lay out exactly these issues that we've discussed in terms of the, uh, the contractual statutory uh, period within which they can make a claim, which in which they can bring suit. You wanna make sure that you are diaring those events so that if things change down the road, you're able to pivot and make sure that you're complying with all that's uh, required under the particular policies. Any other questions? All right, well, thanks to everyone out there for joining us. Thank you, Sarah. And thanks to the BBA for the opportunity to present today. Yeah, thanks everyone. Have a good day.